I want to uh, begin by telling you this, this true story about the oregano plant, the large blue butterfly, and the red ants. True story. I think most of us have containers of oregano in our, in our kitchens, especially if you like cooking uh, Italian food or, or, or Mexican food. And as you may know, <clears throat> oregano has a, a warm, uh, pungent smell. A smell that some people really like. But in nature, that same smell given off by the plant serves as an insecticide, which is supposed to keep insects from munching on it. Like most insects, the red ants don't like the repulsive fumes given off by the oregano plant. But taking advantage of it, they will build their nests close by the plant for protection and to avoid competition from other rival insects. So these are some really smart ants. Well, sensing the red ants are nearby, and don't ask me how, the oregano plant increases its output of fumes, which just so happens to attract the adult large blue butterfly. It lays its eggs on the plant. And eventually, a caterpillar larvae emerges. And by mimicking the ant larva, and by chemically cloaking itself in the scent that seems like an ant, it fools the ants into thinking it is one of their own that has wandered off from the nest. So the ants will pick it up and carry it back to the nursery to care for it. Once in the nursery, the caterpillar starts clucking. I know. Yeah, it starts clucking, a sound that imitates the queen ant, which ensures the ants will leave the caterpillar alone while it grows up to become a beautiful, large, blue butterfly. That sounds like a sweet nature story. Like a Disney movie. It kind of tugs at your heart. Here are these, these red ants are saving and caring for this poor little caterpillar. Gets me right here. But what these ants don't realize is that while that caterpillar has made itself at home in their nursery, it's gorging on the other ant larvae. For several weeks now, we have been studying a letter from the Apostle John to the early church where he has been confronting the Gnostics like the, the caterpillar brought into the ant's nest, these false preachers and teachers and missionaries 
crept inside the church. They seemed like Christians. They talked like Christians. They rubbed elbows with Christians. But they subtly spread a deceptive and dangerous gospel which really wasn't a gospel at all for they rejected the truth of who Jesus is and what He had done. They offered a distorted view of what sin is and they created confusion and doubt about salvation and the hope of eternal life for those who believe. It was a problem back then. And it's a problem today. And therefore, we must be careful who and what we allow into our lives. For before we know it, the damage is occurring from the inside out. This morning we are continuing with this letter from the Apostle John. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we will begin with verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Last week, I, I ended with a summary of what John was telling the church. Listen, my children. Because we are born of God. Because we know the gospel truth. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Because Jesus is coming for us. Abide in Him. Be at home with Him and live your lives in such a way that people can see the family resemblance to your heavenly Father. And when Jesus appears, you will be approaching Him in confidence. Those were some encouraging words from John. And now he shares the basis for those words by explaining who we are, what we will be, and what we should be. John begins by saying, check this out. Check this out. How great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Those words how great, and in other versions it may read what manner, come from a single Greek word translated potipus, which literally means from what country? 
from what country? And it speaks to something that is foreign and wondrous. In, in this context, John speaks of a love that is above us. It is beyond us. It's unlike anything we know. It's a love that is out of this world, so to speak. It's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It's an unrestricted love. It's a love poured out on us. And it's a love that God proved beyond any shadow of a doubt in the person and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And not only that, God took His love a step further. He took His love a step further and He chose us. He chose us. He brought us as close as we could possibly get. And He adopted us as His very own. He calls us children of God. Children of God. And therefore, we are invited to call Him Father. In spite of who we used to be, God loves us because He wants to love us. His love is given to those who do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. And on the basis of that love, we are His children. That's who we are. We have His name. And we are to reflect His character and His nature. And as a result, the world, referring to this sinful, human-centered system in which we live, does not know us because it does not know Him. Those who are of this world are at odds with God. And they are at odds with us. As children of God, we should not expect the world to understand or appreciate our relationship with God because the world does not know Him. It can't understand why we seek to be different. It can't understand why we don't enjoy what they enjoy. It can't understand why we turn away from those things they openly embrace. It can't understand why we seek to honor and please God. A group of teenagers were enjoying a party. And someone suggested they go to a certain club for a good time. But Jan said to her date, I'd rather you took me home. My parents don't approve of that place. Afraid your father will hurt you, somebody asked. No, Jan replied. I'm not afraid my father will hurt me. I'm afraid I will hurt my father. Sure, she felt like an oddball. But because of her love relationship to her father, she had no desire to betray that love. 
in like manner, because of the great love of God for us, because we are children of God, because He is our Heavenly Father, we don't want to sin against Him and betray the love He has poured out on us. So if you seem like an oddball, if you feel like a stranger in this world, if you don't seem popular in the company of this world, if you feel uneasy around the godless activity the world flaunts in your face, then praise God. That's the way it should be. In verse 1, John told us who we are. We are children of God. Now in verse 2, John tells us what we will be. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has appeared, and it has not appeared as of yet, what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. God's love for us does not stop with the new birth. It continues throughout our lives and takes us right up to the Lord's return. One day when Jesus appears, all true believers will see Him and will be like Him in that we will be transformed and given new glorified bodies which are suited for heaven. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a promised hope that one day we will see Jesus face to face and be transformed into His likeness. Now this transformation process has already begun as we walk with Him. And take on His character and His nature. But it will finally be complete when we see Him face to face. No, we will not be equal to Jesus. And no, we will not be identical to Jesus. But we will be like Jesus in glorified bodies. Without the limitations of these physical bodies. And our personal character will be perfected in Christ-like. Because we are children of God and we will be like Jesus when He appears, John now tells us what we should be now. He says in verse 3, 
And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In this verse, John explains that our future hope, our future hope should have an influence in our present life. Or said in another way, the Lord's promised return should keep us on our toes. While we wait, while we hope, we are to start acting like we, who we truly are. When I was a teenager, living under my parents' roof, occasionally my father would tell me before I went out, Remember whose name you carry. You ever heard that? Remember whose name you carry. What did he mean by that? My name is not a royal name. It's not a name for the history books. There's nothing that I'm aware of that's important about my name. But what my father was saying was that I represented someone other than myself. I represented him. I carried his family name. And what I said and what I did would be a reflection on him. On his character and on his reputation. In essence, my father was saying, remember whose child you are. Remember whose child you are. As Christians, we represent our Lord and Savior. And while we wait for Him, we are to be mindful of who we truly are. Children of God. Okay, now we come to a section that has prompted a lot of discussion and debate amongst Bible scholars. So if you have a difficult time understanding this, this next section, don't fret. You're in good company. Okay? Beginning with verse 4, John says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. This is one of those passages that will cause you to swallow your chewing gum if you're not careful. At first glance, it's troubling. Because John says, no one who abides in Christ sins. It's troubling because we know we sin. We wrestle with it. It's the stark reality for each of us. In fact... John already told us back in the first chapter that we sin. Actually, going so far as to explain, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and we call God a liar. Because He said, for all have sinned. So if Christians do sin, if that's our starting point, 
then what in the world is John telling us here? Well, to understand this passage, we first need to understand a word in this passage. A word used several times. And it's the word practice. Practice. In the Greek, the word practice is translated poio. And it speaks of a willful, habitual action. And when referring to sin, John is talking about a person's normal way of life, which is characterized by deliberate and persistent and continual sinfulness. Yes, a Christian will commit sin. But John says they will not practice it. They will not live in it. Or to explain it another way, try this. A pig and a sheep may fall into the same dirty mud hole. You with me? A sheep and a pig may fall into the same dirty mud hole, but there is a difference. The pig will love it. They will wallow in it because that's its nature. The sheep, on the other hand, will want to get out of it and avoid the mud hole the next time because that is its nature. If God abides in you, if you are a child of God, you don't want to wallow in the mud. That's what he's saying. If you are a child of God, you don't want to wallow in the mud. But if you like the mud, and you don't want to get out of the mud, then you can claim what you want. John would say... You're probably a pig. Now in verse 4, John explains that the practice of sin is the practice of lawlessness. And lawlessness is best described as the, the flagrant disregard of God's law. His moral standards. And to take that a little further, it is a disregard of the lawgiver, God Himself. Remember, sin is ultimately against God. And to knowingly live in sin is to live in open rebellion against Him. And what makes this even more startling is the fact that in His great love, God sent His only Son to take away our sin. That's how serious sin is, no matter how the world wants to minimize it. To live in sin is to rebel against God and to betray the love that He has lavished on us. So here's the bottom line. If we are truly children of God, we cannot live in sin as we once did. We cannot live a lifestyle of willful and deliberate and habitual sin. For if we do, John is absolutely clear. 
there is some need for some serious soul-searching because it appears you do not know God and salvation never took place in your life. Charles Spurgeon. I don't quote him very much, but Charles Spurgeon summed it up best when he said, listen to this, so profound. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Let me repeat that. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Well said. Now John is not done. And he makes a very serious contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. He points out there are only two kinds of children in this world. Those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. Meaning, it's either or. Okay? It's either or. There's not a third group for those who want to ride the fence. Because there is no fence. John says, beginning with verse 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. One of the aims of these false preachers and teachers and missionaries in the early church was to convince people that a life of righteousness was not that important. They pushed their deceptive claim that one's lifestyle was not a true representation of their spiritual condition. That's what they pushed. And here John pushes back. He explains that if you are a child of God, then it should be evident in the way you live your life. If you are a child of God, it should be evident in the way you live your life. But if you habitually live like the devil, it doesn't matter what you say. You are a child of the devil. For John, our behavior reveals who we are. Our behavior reveals who we are, or better yet, it reveals whose we are. Whose we are. Something that Jesus taught. In Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 43, 
Jesus said. For there is no good fruit, good tree, excuse me, which produces bad fruit. Nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. In other words, if you say you're an apple tree, probably should see some, see some apples on your, on your branches, right? For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. If you are abiding in Christ and His Word is abiding in you, it will be evident in your life as good fruit. Again, our lives show who we are and whose we are. As children of God, we are to bear a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. And it should be evident in our lives. But for those who practice sin, they show that they are not born of God. They are children of the devil. You cannot be a child of God and yet willfully and consistently live like the devil. That's what these deceptive teachers were claiming. And for John, that was an impossibility. Now, just as a reminder, John is not teaching that we must be sinless in order to be Christian. He's already talked about that in the first chapter. Christians will not be sinlessly perfect. We sin, period. But what John is talking about here are those who claim to be Christian, but their normal manner of lives is characterized by willful and deliberate and habitual sin. In essence, they live their lives as if God does not matter. And John would say, it's no wonder. For they have another father. For the Christian, John says, God's seed abides in them. The seed may be the Spirit of God. Or the Word of God. Or the divine nature of God. Or it could be all three. But whatever the case, this seed in time and with cultivation takes root. In time and with cultivation it sprouts. And in time and with cultivation, fruit is produced. This speaks of life but more so the direction of life of a true child of God. And if God has imparted new life in you so that you become His child, you cannot continue living in sin. The truth is, anybody can sin who wants to sin. Right? We know that. That's the truth. Anybody can sin who wants to sin. But if you are a child of God, you will have new wants. You will have new wants. And it will show. If God's seed abides in you, you cannot wallow in the mud. 
And if you like it in the mud and don't want to get out of the mud, then John might ask, who's your daddy? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord God, that it is enlightening. I thank you, Lord God, that there is confidence found in it. But I also thank you that it causes us to search. To evaluate. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart that is consecrated and devoted and dedicated to you. I pray, Lord God, that Jesus would be our absolute everything. And Father, if we are wallowing in the mud, I know we have those seasons at times. If we are wallowing in the mud, make us miserable. Pull us out. Wash us off and put us on the direction of life. Father, may you be honored and glorified. Thank you for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking this morning, maybe... Probably could have summed this up with a question. And maybe the question is, is not, do we sin? That's really, a, that's kind of a bad question. The question is not, do we sin? Maybe the better question is, how do you react when you sin? Isn't that the better question? How do you react when you sin? No big deal? Yeah, we can minimize it. It's just a, just a little sin. Ain't like I murdered anybody. It's just a little sin. But how do we react? I mean, I have to ask a question myself. Do I make excuses for it? Do I justify it? Yeah, at times I probably do. Just like the rest of you. How do we react when we sin? That's an important question because all sin is against who? God. God. It's personal. I can't answer that question for you. I can't answer that. But I know this. The most miserable person in the world. The most miserable person in the world is a child of God who is living in sin. And if you're not miserable, something is horribly, horribly wrong. A child of God, John would say, cannot willfully and deliberately and knowingly and habitually and continually live in sin. A lifestyle contrary to a child of God. We are to act like who we truly are. Children of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you would, uh, like, Bob, I, I, man, 
I didn't like your sermon. I get that a lot. But, but that hit home. You, 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 you rubbed a nerve. Well, good. Glad I did. Glad I did. Maybe that will cause you to take a self-inventory. Take stock of your own life. Maybe question who you are and whose you are. If that's a concern, I would love to talk with you about it. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I would love to introduce you to Him. He has a great love for you. It's a love that is out of this world. And He proved it once and for all on an old rugged cross. What else could He do? What more could He do to prove how much He loved you? Maybe you want to make Amboy Baptist your church home. Come up and let me know. We'll take care of that this morning. Or maybe there's something else. However the Lord leads you. Just be obedient to Him. He is your Father. And respond to Him. As they pass out the, uh, the, uh, the elements... I'm just reminded of just what this ordinance represents. It's a reminder of God's great love for us. Isn't it? A reminder of His great love. And that Jesus would go to a cross. A horrible cross. Shed His blood on our behalf. He did that taking our sin upon Himself. There had to be punishment for sin. There has to. That is the law. That is the law. does not change. There had to be punishment for sin and that punishment had to be none other than death. That is the punishment. And so Jesus, out of His great love, a love that we could never deserve and never can earn went to the cross in our stead. These elements represent a sacrificial love. A relentless love. An unconditional love for you. What else could Jesus do to prove how much He loved us. I like that song. He could have called how many angels? More than that, actually. A lot more. He could have called multitudes of angels to rescue Him. He had that kind of authority. He had that kind of authority. And it says... He kept his mouth shut. He didn't even defend himself. That's how much he loved us. It's a love that is out of this world. It's a great love. Think about that. Hours before he was to go to an old rugged cross. Just hours. He's with His disciples. He knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. And He took some bread and He broke it. And He told His disciples, this bread represents My body. It's going to be broken for you. It has to be. And he said, when you, when you eat of this bread, remember me. 
remember me. He told his disciples to eat. May we do likewise. And we can't forget about the juice. It represents his blood. Blood is not about death. There's life in the blood. And Jesus said, this cup represents not the old covenant, a new one. Whereby we would be made right with God because of the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. We can now be in a relationship with a holy and pure God through Jesus Christ. That's mind-boggling. That's a great love. And Jesus told his disciples, drink. May we do likewise. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm going to close in in prayer uh, for our our tithes and offerings. I just remind you, our baskets are back there. Or you can use that new QR thingamajigger. Uh, And then also I'm going to pray for our fellowship as well. I pray that you you just stay and enjoy enjoy that with us. So, Father, again, I thank you so much for uh, bringing us here this morning. Lord, I pray that you are honored and glorified. And Lord, I pray even now that your word would just continue to to permeate in our hearts and in our minds. Father, just help us to help us to walk with you, to abide with you. I pray, Lord God, your your word would be at home in us, and that we we, we would represent you as, as a part of our worship. Father, we I know we are commanded to 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 give back a portion of what you've given us. Father, bless the gift that we give. Bless our tithes and offerings. Bless the gift and the giver. And Lord, also help us as a church to use your money wisely. And then, Father, for our fellowship. Lord God, I pray it would just be a sweet fellowship. A fellowship where we make true and lasting and significant connections with one another. May you be honored and glorified. Bless our food and bless, bless it to our bodies. Bless those who have prepared food and brought it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.